Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. And uh, welcome. Good to have you with us today. Another edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Critical times uh, globally, of course, with what's happening in the the Middle East. Uh, We're going to get into that in just a couple of seconds. But also what's happening in Washington, in the U.S. Capitol, uh, where the, uh, well, the clown show circus, I mean, use your own analogy as uh, observers are talking about what's happening here. They still don't have a speaker as uh, we make this uh, podcast today. Reggie, when we talked a week or so ago uh, about the, the Hamas invasion of Israel and the, the carnage that resulted in that, uh, there was an outpouring, of course, globally uh, of support for for Israel and, and for the atrocities that went on there. Uh, and I think you mentioned at that time the proviso was as long as, as you know, Israel doesn't go overboard in their response to this. Uh, and that was always a consideration and a concern, especially with some of the rhetoric that we were hearing from Netanyahu. Uh, on the very eve of the visit for, for the president into the Middle East comes word, of course, about a, a, a bombing, a destruction, a missile attack on a, on a hospital in Gaza with hundreds of people that were dead. Uh, and all of a sudden, now we're starting to hear exactly what you would predict you might hear, uh, that public sentiment and global sentiment may well be turning against Israel in some ways, simply saying this is not the way to retaliate. Now, the Israelis, of course, uh, as you've been reporting, have denied that that was them that did this. But how does that impact what Biden's going to be doing over there and how successful he's going to be? As you mentioned already, uh, the Arab leaders have already said, forget it, we don't even want to meet now. Yeah, I mean, to to, to kind of um, extend on that, we heard from President Biden on the ground uh, in Israel talking about the attack on uh, on the hospital. And and what we heard from the Israeli officials over the last kind of 24 hours leading up to Biden's speech that this was a, a rocket fired from somebody other than uh, the IDF. President Biden came out and said, look, I now have information that's been given to me from Pentagon officials that suggests that this was um, a rocket that was fired uh, possibly by uh, by Islamic jihadist or uh, by some other foreign actor in the region. So you now have the president coming out and, and kind of providing a similar tone to what uh, to what Israel is saying in that it was not the Israelis that fired the rocket on this hospital but at the same time it is leading to that outrage and it is leading to the concern here that the the quote unquote laws of war aren't being uh, adhered to at the same time while there is some question here as to whether or not uh, uh, there's going to be a continued public support here for whatever Israel is trying to do when it comes to to removing Hamas from you know what they believe to be the face of the earth and, and how they're going to carry out with that domestically at home in the United States there is still strong support for what the United States uh, is doing numbers came out from ABC Ipsos leading into Wednesday, uh, suggesting that roughly 50% of the country uh, believes that, that the Biden administration is doing the right thing, or at least that the United States is doing the right thing in providing more uh, munitions and weaponry and assistance for the Iron Dome system. Um, it's a little bit higher than what uh, we see when it comes to support for Ukraine. Those numbers are around 42%. I think it's interesting, though, that 54% have a disapproval rating of how Biden himself is handling this situation, and that falls flat in line with uh, with Ipsos numbers that came out uh, from Reuters last week, suggesting Biden has a 54% disapproval rating overall in his popularity. So Americans like the idea that America is helping out 
they just don't like the idea that it's Joe Biden, the one that is at the top of that that kind of list of people that are providing that support. Uh, and and of course he, that that's baggage that he dragged over there long before this crisis started, as as you've been reporting over the last couple of months now, uh, his numbers seem to be tanking, which is not good news for Democrats, I guess, heading into a re-election year in 2024. What does he expect to accomplish there, though, Reggie? I I, I know the global picture and the grand picture was okay. I'm going to meet with Netanyahu. I think he's meeting with the War Cabinet. Uh, he's going to talk to some other folks. Then he was supposed to go and talk to Arab leaders. That's not going to happen anymore. So I, I, I don't want to suggest that this is really just going to become a photo op visit. Uh, but, you know, when the president of the United States makes a trip over there in the middle of a conflict like this, uh, some people are going to be looking for results. Sure. And I think that you're going to see, I mean, we already saw that the president met with, with uh, family members of hostage uh, victims uh, that were taken by Hamas. And I think that seeing the American president on the ground talking to these people, um, it, it, it continues that that show of support that, that Biden is looking for. At the same time, I mean, we heard from uh, from National Security Council with John Kirby. We've heard from from Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, that there was kind of a multi-point purpose of Biden's trip over here. Number one, it was to try and secure the release of hostages, including, um, you know, roughly two dozen uh, Americans. But secondly, it was to ensure that there was going to be some kind of route made available for humanitarian assistance to get into Gaza. Mm -hmm. We know that the Rafah crossing into Egypt um, has been blocked. Egyptian officials are saying uh, that 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 uh, it's it's blocked for any reason. Palestinians in Gaza are saying, look, it's happening because Israel is continuing to bombard uh, the crossing. Biden is looking to try and get something done to ensure that this humanitarian crisis doesn't turn into uh, an ongoing public health crisis, because, again, it poses it makes it a much more difficult uh, needle to thread for the American government to say, look, we stand by Israel. But at the same time, if this ongoing bombardment in Gaza continues to lead to a growing number of deaths in the region, it's going to be difficult for us to stand by while we're actively saying pay attention to to the rules of war. So I think Biden is trying to ensure that he can make life kind of livable for whatever that might be for the current situation in Gaza while at the same time saying, look, Israel, we understand that your goal is to get rid of Hamas. You need to tell us now what your long-term goal is for Gaza once this is over because the status quo can't remain as it's been for the last 15 or 16 years. I know you've been talking to some of the insiders in Washington about their opinions and, and, the, and the politics involved in this as well. One of the things that strikes me, and as, as we've watched some of the pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrations that have gone on in Washington, New York, uh, Toronto, other places like that, uh, is uh, is some of the statements from, from Palestinian politicians. Uh, the uh, ambassador, I think, to the United Nations was on CNN the other day. What seems to be lacking here, Reggie, is uh, at no time do, have we heard any of those Palestinian leaders denounce what happened in Israel. They're denouncing what's happening now, uh, you know, and, and the carnage, and that's evident for all to see, and it's horrific to see uh, the loss of life in Gaza about what's happening here. But why aren't the Palestinians saying, Hamas, that's not us. We didn't do that. We're not responsible for that. They, As a matter of fact, you know, they, they, they seem to be glossing over that, as if to suggest that this was a, a you know, a, an attack simply by the Israelis on, on on Gaza, without talking at all about what seemed to precipitate that, which of course was was the invasion into Israel right now. Um, is there any way people are going to find some middle ground here and and get some acknowledgement that this is killing and hurting people on both sides? Sure, I think I think it's early days still, and I think that uh, well, it's we it's been difficult to find leaders from within the Arab world say 
what Hamas carried out in Israel uh, was an atrocity, at least to the level that we're hearing from uh, most of the Western world and from the United States and from Israel uh, itself. We have to remember that many of these Arab nations have an incredibly strong tie to the Palestinian people, and their main concern right now uh, is the ongoing humanitarian uh, crisis. Um, and, and, you know, it also plays into where some of these foreign actors are set up and the fact that, that many of them are backed by Iran. And, and if you find yourself on the wrong side or you're making the wrong comments here, uh, you potentially put yourself on the wrong side of Iran. So it, it, it may be possible here that some of these leaders are trying to kind of walk a delicate tightrope here uh, in order to ensure that you know they don't inflame tensions domestically with their own uh, population, while at the same time trying to ensure that there's some kind of um, stability brought to the region. I mean, look, I think Biden went to this region attempting to restabilize what has been uh, you know a persistently destabilized uh, zone for the last number of, of days, at least um, since since the Hamas attack w- was carried out, but. You know, what we hear from the Arab world going forward, I think, may also dictate whatever the response is from the West. President Biden is expected to talk to some of these leaders individually on the phone while he's on Air Force One coming back to Washington. We'll get readouts to what he talks about with them, and that may give us a sense as to what he's able to decipher from from where these countries stand at the moment. You made an interesting point when we talked last week about the, the, the rationale and maybe the reasons why the attack on Israel happened when it did. And, and one of those was, of course, was the negotiations, which we were told were progressive negotiations between Israel, the Saudis, and a number of other Arab nations uh, that would have meant, if not necessarily lasting peace, but at least some agreement. Uh, is that blown up right now? Because the, the indication, as you told me in Washington, was that there were some people that thought that this was a direct attack to try to, 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 to scuttle that, that discussion and any chance of those sorts of agreements being made. Uh, it's certainly going to I guess, slow things down, if not blow the whole thing up right now. What are you hearing about that part of it? Sure. And I, I, I mean, I wouldn't put it past the Secretary of State when he was undertaking some of that shuttle diplomacy, particularly when he was in Saudi Arabia, to have brought up, um, you know, conversations, many of them probably not put onto the public record and put into the readouts of mm-hmm. what Anthony Blinken was talking about uh, with the leaders. But I'm sure that that was part of this ongoing conversation, because this is a key element of Biden's foreign policy agenda, is to try and secure some kind of normalized relationship between Israel and some of the nations uh, throughout the Middle East. Um, I think it's also worth reminding that we've heard repeatedly from the administration when they talk about the Hamas attack that Iran uh, wasn't directly behind it, even though we know that Iran supplies um, Hamas with funding and, and, and support. But ultimately, it is Iran that is against this normalization of relationships with Israel uh, and, and other places in the Middle East because they feel that it could be destabilizing towards them. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to know whether or not this is going to fully derail the peace talks between Israel and the Saudis uh, and beyond, or whether or not this is going to be a temporary hold. But given the the ongoing crisis that we're seeing play out on the ground between Israel uh, and Gaza, this could be a situation that either is put on hold or is left to another administration, and it becomes a moment for the Biden administration to try and recalculate what their next step is going to be. What's said in front of the microphones and what's often said behind closed doors in politics, as you well know, it, it can be two very different things. Uh, we know that Biden's going over there trying to, to broker some sort of a peace, some sort of an agreement, uh, and he reaffirmed his support, wholehearted support, uh, hugging Netanyahu. 
they've known each other for a long, long time, going back to Biden's days, of course, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and as vice president. Uh, BB, as his closer people call him, his friends call him, uh, and I've had a long relationship, was one of the key comments Biden made. Uh, but at the same time, it's been an acrimonious relationship that he's had with Netanyahu over the years, uh, depending on which way policies are going. Uh, I got to assume, Reggie, that the 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 the, the hugs and the, the reaffirmation of support, as sincere as it was, uh, might have been overshadowed by some of the rather salty language that Biden can also use uh, behind closed doors. And we've heard a couple of those things, of course, uh, off mic. Uh, you know, when mics were open, he didn't know about it. Uh, I got to figure that when he looks at the way some things have gone and some of the decisions and some of the rhetoric that Netanyahu has, has, has used in the last couple of days, uh, that Biden would probably make his feelings known to Netanyahu that, look, at, don't be the bad guys here. And, and he's never going to say that publicly, but I'm sure that's something that, that he would have reaffirmed behind closed doors. Sure. I think it's a combination of A, don't be the bad guy, but B, don't put yourself in a position that makes it much more difficult for you to get out of. And I, I talked to a former State Department uh, a policy advisor on, on Israel and Middle East peace, and, and she made a comment to me of, of saying, look, the United States has been down this road before, getting themselves involved in wars that make them the bad guy, that make it difficult to get out of that situation. Um, and there is general concern amongst some within the Biden administration that Israel doesn't really have a plan going forward, that, that it may not be a resolve that they're seeking right now, that it's retaliation for what took place uh, during the attack on October 7th. Um, and there may be comments from Biden to Netanyahu by, w when it comes to, look, you know, some of the policy decisions that you've made when it comes to, uh, to settlements uh, are not something that I agree with, or, or the policy decisions that you're making internally when it comes to, to judicial reform are not things that I agree with. But you need to, to be able to put yourself in a position now on this precipice of war um, that, you, that you follow the lines uh, appropriately, because there is, you know, the United States is going to stand by its ally, but it's only going to stand by uh, for so long, especially if it ultimately results in additional actions being taken by the U.S. I mean, look, there are aircraft carrier striker groups that are now in the region. There are 2,000 Marines that are offshore, but ready and, and sitting on standby. And the United States public is weary of, of U.S. kind of movement towards instability in the Middle East because they fear that they're going to get dragged back into it. So I think when the, when the president is saying to, to, to Biden off camera, behind closed doors, whatever the conversations are, proceed with caution and, and, and do what's appropriate, not only is he talking to, to Israel, but he's kind of projecting that back home as well by saying, look, America can also find itself on the line here. What about the, the possibility, the threat of this expanding? Uh, and I'm talking about the threat from the north, of course, uh, with Hezbollah on the, the Lebanese border. Uh, we know that when, when they activated the, the troops, uh, the call-up, of course, the Israeli troops, uh, a lot of them were deployed to the north because of the possible threat. And on a scale of 1 to 10, the, the concern, I think, was about a, an 8 or a 9, if not a 10. Has that diminished? Is that still a possibility? Are they still looking to the north while they're trying to deal with what's happening in Gaza? No, I mean, look, there are ongoing skirmishes between the IDF uh, and, and between Hezbollah coming from southern Lebanon. And, and in the last couple of days, shelling got to the point of where there was a journalist that was killed, um, you know, in, in that crossfire. And we have to remember that the United States bringing this additional force in um, by the sea, parking it in the eastern Mediterranean, it's not there to reinforce Israeli troops. It's there to act as a deterrent for uh, for any uh, of Iran's regional proxies that are in the region that may try to take advantage of the situation like Islamic Jihad or like uh, like Hezbollah. Um, so there is that that fear that if Israel 
did move into Gaza, that this could, you know, take away some of their focus from the north and Hezbollah would act. And, and that's what the U.S. is trying to, um, you know, avoid the situation kind of turning into. At the same time, the United States is also actively looking back at home because they are caught up in their own domestic crisis when it comes to the speaker. Uh, and it's going to make it more difficult to appropriate funding uh, and resources into Israel if this were to expand, if they can't get the kind of house in order and open it back up by putting a speaker in place. Um, and until they do that, the U.S. has to, to kind of hope that they're able to to keep the calm or at least the calm that's there right now uh, from from eroding anymore. Well, let's let's segue into that uh, because of what's happening here on the home front uh, in Washington. Uh, as you mentioned, of course, uh, it's 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 been a, a dog's breakfast of, of of political innuendo back and forth on this. Uh, we knew Kevin McCarthy was going to be in hot water. He got booted out of the job uh, by his own caucus. Uh, Jim Jordan is the latest guy, of course, uh, uh, who uh, seems to be after the job. They had a vote yesterday. He didn't get enough. Uh, votes. And maybe before we talk about the intricacies of that, maybe remind our, our, our viewers on the podcast here, Reggie, uh, about how this is stalemated, just about everything that's going on. Uh, the, the Congress can't pass bills. They can't pass relief for Israel, for, for Afghanistan. There's another uh, crisis to do with a, a possible government shutdown right now. And in the meantime, uh, these guys are spinning the wheels. I mean, you're right. I mean, look, the speaker is a constitutional role uh, in the United States. And without that person being in place, uh, legislation can't move to the floor. And you're right. Whether it's defense spending on a place like uh, on Israel or, or Ukraine or trying to keep the government funded beyond November 15th, uh, when a continuing resolution to, to keep things at existing levels uh, is set to expire, they can't do it. They can't even put forward a simple resolution, a text resolution that condemns the attack by Hamas on Israel, because that would require a speaker to bring that to the floor for a vote. So there are there are legitimate concerns here to the fact that the House is, is shut down. And to go far beyond that, the House can't even out, can't even carry out the business of the Republican agenda up to and including investigations into Hunter Biden and the impeachment uh, of President Biden. These are all stalled because they don't have a speaker. And you're right, Jim Jordan is the one that they're trying to put in place. He didn't get anywhere on the first round. And in fact, he came up short, shorter than Kevin McCarthy did on the first of his 15 rounds of voting back in January. So the Republicans are in disarray. Much of it is brought on by themselves, but they'll say that it's the Democrats' fault for getting rid of Kevin McCarthy. But this is a party that can't figure out how to move forward. And because they can't do that, the government can't do that. And it makes it much more difficult on both the domestic and the foreign front. Well, well let's talk about the dynamic. As you mentioned, he came up short. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the, uh, the, the Democratic leader, of course, in the House, actually had more votes than Jordan in that particular vote. Uh, there are still some people that are, are suggesting that some sort of a coalition reaching across the aisle uh, might be the ultimate solution, at least in the short term. And it seems everything when it comes to the speaker is in the short term, I guess. Uh, but J Jordan has already thrown hot water or cold water or any kind of water onto that, saying the American people don't want collaboration. They, they, they want Republicans to run this thing. Uh, who, who's up next? I mean, it's, it sounds like, as, as you've been reporting, uh, that uh, he's actually, when they have another vote on this, he actually might lose some support here. Uh, he's clearly not the guy that the Democrats want. It's clearly he's not the guy that even the Republican caucus wants. 
Well, and he wasn't the guy the Republican uh, conference wanted, even when they were trying to figure out the first nominee. I mean, look, Steve Scalise, the number two in the Republican Party, took more votes internally behind closed doors than Jim Jordan did and ultimately had to step out because so many Republicans came forward saying, look, he's got health issues. He shouldn't be the person. He's too close to McCarthy, even though he had the the broad majority of the people that were voting behind closed doors, now giving it to Jim Jordan. He is set to, to come up short uh, again. Some Republicans spinning it as saying, look, this is, this is all part of a plan to try and get rid of the status quo or, or break down the establishment. But at the end of the day, you're right in that Hakeem Jeffries had more votes than Jim Jordan. He had 212. And what does that signal? It signals that, that Democrats are unanimous in the support of their leader. And the Republicans are struggling to be able to figure out someone to carry the baton, even for the short period between now and the next election. Is there a consensus candidate? There could be. The Speaker pro temp right now, Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina, um, there have been some... Uh, some Democrats saying, look, we could work with moderate Republicans and support this if this is the person brought forward. But at the end of the day, his name wasn't even mentioned as a potential candidate when the, the, when the round of voting took place uh, on Tuesday. So it's unclear what's going to happen. And look, Republicans are the one who are the majority here, but there are a few Republicans in Biden-held districts. They risk getting primaried if they work with the Democrats, but they also risk potentially getting voted back in in these blue districts. If they were to work with the Democrats, look, four could walk over, make Hakeem Jeffries the speaker with Republicans still holding on a majority. And even though it would make a lot of Republicans angry, the House would open and work would get done. It's really difficult to come across bipartisanship in, in, in this country, especially in the House and especially over the last few years. And until they can work on a solution, um, the keys remain out of the door and the door remains locked. It's amazing just how things have changed. The dynamic has changed. And, you know, I'm not going to harken back to the good old days, but, you know, when Ted Kennedy, a, a Democrat, and Orrin Hatch, a Republican, would work together on legislation, same thing with, uh, with Tip O'Neill in the House. Uh, that's, that's just not happening these days. But your point's interesting about finding a moderate Republican. That kind of sounds like an oxymoron these days because it's, it's the loud voices on the extreme right that seem to be governing that party right now. And I guess the question they should be asking, and I don't know if they're going to do this behind closed doors, do they really want a, a Jim Jordan to be the voice and the face of that Republican Party? This guy's a, an election denier. Uh, you know, one of the apparently one of the organizers of the January sixth insurrection, uh, and that that's on the record. I mean, they, you know, they, these, these are the sorts of things that are going on. You got a guy like Scalise who's very much affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan uh, in his home district. Uh, I mean, it seems as if the the right is. We certainly know they've controlled the party over the last little while. But is that the face that they want to present in twenty twenty four? Especially as you say, where Republicans got elected in Biden states. Uh, those guys are th kind of thinking right now, I'm going to lose my job if, if this is what we're going to be doing. I mean, look, Republicans really risk losing their majority writ large uh, if they continue to go forward the way that they are by keeping the government closed down uh, and by not being able to rally around somebody. And look, they're trying to rally around somebody in Congress who is essentially Donald Trump without being Donald Trump. And, and we've seen now election after election and uh, just in general polling, the broad majority of the public, including more and more Republicans, don't want to see Donald Trump involved in politics anymore. And I think the party is still stuck by the fact that Trump 
has this mild control, at least over the narrative, um, and is able to start primarying people and making threats. And, and that may be where Republicans run into um, a bit of trouble going forward. But they're also pretty much against anything that's not that, even kind of shutting out their own centrist members of the party. I mean, look, there were conversations of maybe we could get Liz Cheney to come and, and she, we could elect her as the speaker. There are so many in the party now that are against her because she stood up against Donald Trump and worked with Democrats on the January 6th committee that even trying to to deal with things that are a glaring reality amongst the broad public in that some of the things that Republicans have done are wrong. They see that as as a negative Um, and it becomes a question of, well, what are they willing to do when it you know, when it comes to putting somebody in place? You're right on Jim Jordan not being liked. Look, number one, he's not liked by a vast majority in the party. Number two, he's been criticized for the way he's handled the, the um, forward movement towards impeaching Joe Biden. And number three, he's criticized for the fact that in 16 years he hasn't passed a single bill and he's put forward legislation that the broad majority of the American public is against. Yet that's the person that they're trying to get to lead the party, which is why they continue to find themselves in disarray. I guess, is it an identity crisis here, Reggie, where they don't know who they are? I mean, we've known that there was an extremist element of that party uh, for quite some time. Uh, Trump was really, I, I suppose, their, their, their messiah, their savior. Uh, but they tried to present a much more centrist policy, I guess, when it came to election time. Uh, but that seems to have blown up right now with election interference and a number of, of uh, state legislatures run by Republicans that are, are, are moving towards uh, uh, legislation that's actually going to make it more difficult for minorities to vote and things of this nature. Uh, has has the cover been thrown off right now and, and Americans are looking at the Republican Party as it actually is in 2023? Possibly. Uh, and I think that this is going to be the opportunity for Democrats to jump in and say, look, we told you so. We told you this is what was going to happen if Republicans were the ones who, who got behind the steering wheel and started driving this ship forward. Um, this is going to be that moment for not only Democrats in the House, but for the president uh, and for the vice president to hit the campaign trail on the way to 2024 to say, look, we need things to be different. Republicans came out with one, two, three, A, B and C of the things that they were going to do for the American public. Uh, and they've struggled to carry through with any of them, even the ones that, that they, they promised were going to bring the big gun ho results like like investigations into Joe Biden they haven't been able to do that so you know it, it's unclear what they intend to do going forward and how this is going to to potentially help them if it can at all running towards um, the next election but ultimately I think the biggest test is going to be here not only ensuring that the United States can continue to stand by Israel as an ally. But if the government shuts down on November 15th, Republicans can do what they can to try to blame the Democrats for it. But ultimately, it will be Republicans themselves who are the, the governing majority of the House that will be the ones who are at fault. And how the American public looks at Republicans, if Americans can't get paid, um, that's going to be a big factor when people walk into the voting booths next year. It's fascinating to see that the stories that everyone was talking about five, six weeks ago, uh, especially Donald Trump's legal woes, uh, seem to have been shoved at the back pages of newspapers and on newscasts now, if they're even in there at all, because of these other issues that, that have taken precedence, and I, I think rightly so. Uh, we'll cover the other ones, of course, in future podcasts. Reggie, always great to have you on the show. I know how busy you are these days down in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, thanks so much for this, and we'll do a part two to this and, and talk about some of those other problems in a future podcast. Stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, uh, global correspondent, of course, in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and that's it for this edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast. Critical discussions and critical times. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Rebecca Wizens and her team at Wizens Law. 
Rebecca Wissens is a 20-time winner of the Hamilton Reader's Choice Awards for their exceptional client care and legal practice specializing in personal injury, car accidents, accidental falls, and Wilson Estates. Now, if you or a loved one have been seriously injured, or if you want to make sure that your family is taken care of for the future with a will and powers of attorney, call Rebecca Wissens, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. When life happens, you can rely on Rebecca Wissens and Wissens Law. And trust me, Rebecca is my wife, and I don't know what I'd do without her. That's Wissens Law, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. Subscribe to my Substack for timely news updates and commentary straight to your inbox. Let's keep the conversation going. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Let me know what you think we should be talking about next by contacting me through my website at www.billkelly.co. Thanks for tuning in. This is Bill Kelly. Till next time, you take care. Thank you.